Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 13th, 2017. On this week's show, Sports Illustrated's Grant Wall will join us to talk about the fierce competition. Maybe it's a titanic struggle or an epic brawl to take the top position at U.S. soccer, where businessy dudes and former players are vying to become the group's next president. And our old pal Mike Pesca will join us for a midseason cavalcade of whimsy, wherein we'll look at the NFL's renaissance of end zone celebration the University of Miami's turnover chain, and locker room speeches that may or may not inspire teams to victory. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Or should I say, go out there and win the podcast, Stefan. Fight, 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 team. We're going to go out there and we're going to do it today. We're going to podcast our best. I am like so stoked right now. I could run through. That was my Newt Rockney impersonation, and we'll play that clip later. I can run. I could run through one of those egg crate-shaped things that are on the wall of our podcast studio for sound dampening purposes. That's how pumped I am. Stefan, would you like to intro our first segment? I would. It was a big, big week for U.S. soccer. The women's national team gearing up for qualifying next year for the 2019 Women's World Cup. They tied and won friendlies against rival Canada. And the men's national team featuring household names like Kellen Rowe, Lyndon Gooch, Weston McKenney, and Josh Sargent is in Portugal for a friendly on Tuesday that kicks off the United States run to qualify for the uh, 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Proceeds from the game will benefit victims of wildfires in central and northern Portugal. We've got that. Back home in the aftermath of the men's failure to qualify for the next World Cup in Russia next year, the field is indeed getting crowded to elect a president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. Grant Wall writes about soccer for Sports Illustrated. He is here. Hey, Grant. Hey, how are you? Let's start with the aftermath of the men's disaster. Bruce Arena is out as coach, as expected. Only three players who suited up in the loss to Trinidad that ensured failure are with the team in Portugal. Josh Sargent, whom I just mentioned, played in the U-17 World Cup. Do you expect uh, the new beginnings to continue here, Grant? Have we seen the last of Clint Dempsey, Tim Howard, Michael Bradley on the national team? You know, that's a good question. I don't know if we've seen the very last of them. Clint Dempsey is currently tied with Landon Donovan as the all-time leading goal scorer for the U.S. men's national team. My guess is Dempsey will get some opportunities to try and break that record. Um, As far as Tim Howard's concerned, I do think, as uh, people have been saying, it. you know, once this horrible loss happened to Trinidad, preparation for World Cup 22 has started. And so... 
uh, in my opinion, as many young players of the future should be called in as possible right now. And that's kind of what we're seeing for this Portugal friendly. So there is a history of recriminations in U.S. soccer, a very recent history. In the Klinsman era, even before uh, Klinsman got canned, there were pieces. There was a famous one by Brian Strauss with anonymous players sniping at the coach and his tactics or or lack thereof. Um is it just me or has there been a little bit less of that from the players? Is that because it's like pretty obvious that everyone is to blame for what happened in Trinidad and throughout the cycle? Or is there in the U.S. locker room on the roster, are there players who are kvetching about Bruce Arena, about Sunil Galati, about the position that they were put in and the fact that the team didn't qualify? I do think the players are smart enough to realize that they – played a huge role in the U.S. not qualifying for World Cup 2018. And so we haven't seen any situations of, of U.S. players complaining about Bruce Arena or Jurgen Klinsmann or Sunil Gulati, the U.S. soccer president. Um, the closest thing we got was Jeff Cameron, uh, who was really not used much at all yeah. under Bruce Arena, uh, having some sort of cryptic messages on Twitter questioning the formation that Arena had uh, with the team. I think it is crazy that Jeff Cameron, who plays week in and week out in the Premier League, was not a part of the last several U.S. games in this run of failure. So it's it's not on him. So if anyone has a right to complain, maybe it's him. Uh, but this was plenty of blame to go around. And plenty of blame has been passed around, indeed, since the loss. Arena gone calls for Sunil Gulati to to step down or to not run again for president. And one of the most obvious effects of the of the debacle is that there is a huge field of people who are now running to be president, um, hoping to succeed Galati. Galati's already been in there for 12 years. He's going for one more term, right? Grant, this would give him 16 years as president of U.S. soccer. Um, but now he's got a lot of opposition. He hasn't even declared that he's going to run again. The election is in February. Rick Santorum is in there. Mike Huckabee. <laughs> Huckabee <laughs> Herman Cain. Yeah, yeah. Carly Fiorina, I think, is a contender. I mean, the question right now is who is not running for U.S. soccer president? We've got seven candidates who have announced, and Sunil Gulati, who's been president the last 12 years, has not announced yet whether he's going to run or not. Uh, clearly, the timing of this situation has created some chaos. The U.S. failing to qualify for the World Cup for the first time since 1986. And here we have a once every four years presidential election in U.S. soccer in early February. So what a lot of people thought would be Gulati's coronation for one final four-year term has suddenly thrown everything wide open because even Gulati's right-hand man, Vice President Carlos Cordero, has announced he's running for U.S. soccer president in sort of an etu brute uh, moment. And you've got plenty of other people running, including former players like Eric Winalda, Kyle Martino, Paul Caligiuri. You've got lawyers who are running. And we'll see if the, the field thins out a little bit. Nominations are due by December 12th, and you have to have at least three nominations from state associations around the country to even be an official candidate. So you might see a few less uh, folks uh, at that point. But the actual election will be February 10th in Orlando. This is really weird. I mean, the way U.S. soccer is governed and the way this election takes place is bizarre. This is like some sort of East Block voting <laughs> procedure. It's, you know, there are all of these different councils and committees, adult soccer, youth soccer, professional soccer. They all have a percentage of votes in this thing. And you've got this clusterfuck of candidates now that have declared all of whom are sort of running on the men's team failure to qualify for the World Cup. It's, it's and to be weird. clear, the women are, are under U.S. soccer, too, and there are yes. no women candidates. And there are no women candidates, and they're the most successful entity within the, 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 the U.S. soccer structure. Yeah, there's so much to talk about there, but it's a great point. Very, very few women in the leadership of U.S. soccer right now. Where are the women who could be terrific presidential candidates? People like Julie Foudy, people like 
uh, Mary Harvey, who has experience at FIFA, maybe even Mia Hamm. Why are they not running? Well, they're not running for a couple of reasons. One of them is that U.S. soccer president is an unpaid job. And I feel like that needs to change because if you want to attract uh, talented people, you got to pay them. And two, because there's this tradition of women not necessarily being treated well or respected by the leadership of U.S. soccer. And when you look at the people who are actually voting delegates in this election in February, a very small percentage of them will be women. So even though U.S. soccer has, thanks to Title IX in many ways, given more opportunities to women to play the game over the years at a high level, there's still a very big gender problem in U.S. soccer. So I was looking at this list of the candidates. ESPN uh, FC has one. Uh, you've run through them as well. Grant, I'm just trying to figure out, like, who should I support? Or, like, even if I'm in favor of, like, something from column A or something from column B, like, what do these people <laughs> stand for? I don't, even, I don't even know. Like, one thing I guess that I was surprised by is that promotion and relegation seems like it's a huge talking point here. I know that when we ask for a, you know, when we have a call-in show that, like, a bunch of, like, random hang up and listen listeners you're not random you're all beautiful individuals like that's an issue that people that listen to our show care about promotion and relegation that it should come to u.s sports but that this is like a huge deal among the people who could potentially lead u.s soccer was surprising to me like what else is there like what are the things distinguishing these candidates from each other another topic that is getting a lot of attention in this election campaign is simply wanting to make the leadership of u.s soccer focus more on the soccer side of things instead of just on the business side. Because U.S. soccer is doing very well from a business perspective. They've got a surplus now in excess of $130 million and need to figure out how to spend that. But in terms of getting better on the soccer side, at least on the men's side, that is not happening, clearly. And so I think some of the candidates are trying to sell themselves as, I can improve things on the soccer side, look at my background, uh, as a player or as an administrator who will be more willing to hire a soccer general manager to run things or a soccer technical community to make coaching hires, which is a big part of what the leadership of U.S. soccer does. There's a lot of questions about whether giving Jurgen Klinsmann an extension and a promotion before the 2014 World Cup was smart or letting him stay in as long as he was before he got fired was a smart move because then there was a chain reaction of problems that resulted. The risk here, of course, is that you throw the baby out with the bathwater, that we criticize Sunil Gulati and say, we need something totally different. We need a player to run things. And the truth is that Kyle Martino and Paul Caligiuri um, and Eric Winalda, as well-meaning as they might be, are players, former players. They are not business people. And it's it it's, would be foolish to discount how influential Sunil Gulati has been, both in raising the, the, the level of the business side of U.S. soccer, but also raising the profile and impact that the United States has in world soccer. Um, and, and I think I, I worry about that sort of about losing sight of the fact that this is a job that's not about who's going to be the next coach of the men's national team. It's a job that is about many, many things, including the structure of, of development in U.S. soccer, but also the relationship of the United States in the rest of the world, right? No, I think that's true. And I think one thing that Sunil Gulati has done that you cannot criticize him for is raising the profile and influence of the United States in FIFA, where he's on the FIFA board, the FIFA council. Um, and clearly, Gulati is uh, the head of the World Cup bid committee for 2026, which has a very good chance of bringing the World Cup back to North America uh, in 26. So uh, those are important roles that he has built. And I think he deserves a ton of credit for that. What I would say about the business side of U.S. soccer is the credit for that goes to Dan Flynn, who has been the CEO since 2000. He has that as his everyday job, building the business and he gets paid quite well to do that, um, as opposed to the presidency position, which is an unpaid job. So uh, Dan Flynn, still the, the CEO, general secretary of U.S. soccer. Um, and so on the business side, despite missing out on the World Cup, things still look very promising for the U.S. I do think that you need to have someone come in who has good soccer instincts and uh, can get a group of smart soccer people together to plot out the future of U.S. soccer. 
I don't want us, uh, our listeners to think that we've just spent uh, 15 minutes wasting their time. But if it's like if it's the CEO who's in charge of running the business, if the presidency is an unpaid position, um, why not just put in some like figurehead? figurehead? Um, does this actually matter? Are we only talking about this because we're desperate for something to talk about? Because uh, it's actually just coming across the wires. The U.S. is not going to be in the 2018 <laughs> World Cup. <laughs> There's certainly uh, an argument to be made that we're putting way too much importance on this U.S. soccer presidential election just because there's so many people running and it's something to talk about. Um, and you could argue that you need someone who is going to be a consensus builder who is going to lead the board of directors of U.S. soccer as U.S. soccer president. And I do think it's important that you have someone who is inclusive. Uh, the reputation that Sunil Gulati has gotten over the years is that he is a very active president who doesn't like to delegate, who likes to be in control of, of just about everything. And there's certainly a feeling that that needs to change, that the president who comes in should probably be like uh, some of Gulati's predecessors who were more inclusive uh, in not having control of just about every decision. You interviewed Landon Donovan last week for SI, and his first answer when asked why he's not running was, one, I'm not remotely qualified for that job. Two, I would have no idea how to even begin that job. Three, I don't want to do that job. And four, there are better ways for me to be involved and impactful. That might also apply to the other players who are running for this position. Can I just interrupt and say that actually made me want him to be Yes, I was president. just going to say that after refinishing your interview, I was like, oh my God, I mean, I'm in the bag for Donovan and always have been. But after reading that, it was like, this is perfect. He is someone that's willing to learn, has really smart ideas about um, the, some very basic things that need to change nationally in the way we approach development in youth soccer and seems really willing now to get involved because, as he said, which I also thought was impressive, he feels partly responsible, even though he wasn't on this team, for not doing more and for the U.S. not qualifying. Dude is humble and self-aware, which is something that you can rarely say about someone who is throwing his hat into the ring for president of any organization. <laughs> No, it's true. I mean, I think uh, Donovan realizes that in some ways being U.S. soccer president is a thankless job. And to get votes, remember, it's not the fans who are voting in this election. It's a bunch of delegates from U.S. youth soccer and U.S. adult amateur soccer and the Athletes Council. Uh, it's a, you know, a bunch of people that nobody's ever heard of and have different ideas of what they want as constituents that may not align and probably don't align in many ways with the average fan. So that's something I learned when I ran for FIFA president back in 2011. I forgot about that. Which, yeah, one of my fun experiences over time was that, you know, we had a poll on the Sports Illustrated website which said, you know, here's Grant Wall, Sepp Blatter, who would you vote for? And I got like 99% of the vote, but Anybody would have gotten 99% of the vote because the world's fans and U.S. soccer fans aren't really represented in elections. All right, before we let you go, Grant, a little handicapping here. Kyle Martino, Eric Winalda, they have big public personalities. They have had platforms on television, so everyone's going to know who they are, obviously. Uh, the business folks here, Cordero, Carlos Cordero, has experience inside the U.S. Soccer Federation. I don't think... This guy, Paul LaPointe, is going to win. He's uh, the Northeast Conference manager in the semi-pro United Premier Soccer League. But he also did start the Massachusetts Twisters indoor pro team. Um, so, I mean, when you look at the, this field and the kind of person that this broad membership is likely, might be likely to vote for, what do you see happening here? It's really up in the air at this point. So much depends on whether Sunil Gulati decides to run again and how much anger will remain toward him among the voters about the U.S. men missing the World Cup. Um, I think also when you look at uh, some things to watch, I guess, there's 20% of the vote is provided by the Athletes Council, which is a group of current and former players. And they tend to vote as a block and they could potentially swing the election with whoever they decide to vote for. And also the pro side of things uh, has a lot of influence, about 24% of the vote. And Don Garber, the commissioner of MLS, uh, could have a very big influence on how the pro side votes. 
Uh, I would look right now at those two areas, the Athletes Council and the pros, as probably going to be the main deciders in the election. Grant Wall covers soccer for Sports Illustrated. He's got a new book coming out next May. It's called Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. Buy it. Grant, thanks, man. Enjoyed it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the 2017 Hang Up and Listen Whimsy Spectacular, a heads up that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will talk about the latest in the Jerry Jones versus Roger Goodell NFL owner versus commissioner standoff and Papa John is involved. To hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 per year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag and bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For our next segment, it's going to be a hang up and listen mega block power hour commercial free. Um, we've got Mike Pesca in here, a former member of the hang up and listen panel. Hello, Mike. Family. I like to think of it as the family. <laughs> Great to have you on, my friend. So we hung your vocal cords from the rafters and don't worry because we had them cleaned. Mm-hmm. So they're not they're not dripping uh, on us, but it's kind of the the best we could do. There wasn't really a jersey situation, so we thought, what better way to honor mm-hmm. Mike Pesca than to get some like uh, desiccated larynx in, yeah. the, in the DC studio? My nodes, <laughs> <laughs> your nodules are uh, are wafting uh, in the room. So the one thing that we did retire since the jersey was not an option was. Whimsy Watch, that was the real kind of pesca flavor, little uh, pesca marinade in the hang up and listen uh, salmon. Um, the notion was that we were searching for like whimsical items and the most non-whimsical entity in the sporting scene, right, Stefan? Yeah, particularly in the NFL. Particular to the NFL. So as soon as Mike... Uh, goes on to spend more time with his family or whatever it is that he's doing, the gist, uh, among other things. Um, the NFL relaxes its celebration rules, and now there has been what I would describe as a whimsy renaissance, Mike. Yeah. A, a whimsissance. It's the whims happening. I think that, uh, well, I guess you could say that uh, ratings are down 8% since they allowed touchdown celebrations. Some would blame other factors, but I I actually think they've been tremendous. I enjoyed the uh, Vikings playing leapfrog. I enjoy a lot of cell phone. It would be interesting to contrast this uh, period of celebration, legal celebration with the old. I think there's a lot of technology-inflected celebrations using the ball as a cell phone. That that comes up quite a bit. Players passing it to each other, I can't get a signal, that sort of thing, using it as a touchpad. But it's great. I mean, it's just great. That's the thing I show my kids to hook them and then try to indoctrinate them into a lifetime of rooting for a sport that causes brain damage. I, I think that this is actually, you bring up a good point, Mike, which is this is probably material for like a, a PhD thesis, right? A dissertation comparing the two eras of celebration in the NFL and how they more broadly have affected our appreciation of and ratings and, and interest in the National Football League. That was amazing. It was like, based on what Mike, I think everyone out there is listening, I think Mike just uh, gave a little uh, dissertation abstract. That's what we were all thinking. Well, Dusting it so with we dissertation talked about, fodder, yeah. <laughs> we talked about this forever, that this was such an easy win for the NFL. For the NFL and just like, a, there, there are so many things to criticize the NFL for, but this was almost the cleanest hit because it's just like so obviously stupid that they didn't allow guys to dance in the end zone or do whatever it is that they're doing. And it's been totally borne out. And then I think they're being 
Mike mentioned the ratings. I think they're getting their karma for not allowing this for so long because nobody cares. They're not getting like the pos- – I mean, I guess people do care, but they're not getting the positive bump that they would have gotten in past years because people are so exercised about the protests. Yeah. Well, the protests and – everything else and Zeke Elliott and Goodell's contract and every other non-football related um, piece of information that that emanates from the NFL every week. But don't you think, Mike, like if this had happened in like 2013 or whenever, that like there would be like a Sports Illustrated cover that's like the NFL is fun again. Yeah, yeah. If it had happened during the period when ratings were going up and ratings were going to go up uh, regardless of these little ancillary things, this would be credited as a thing that the NFL has gotten right, a thing that the NFL has, um, you know, uh, or wrong, they quickly corrected. It would be like, have you noticed that in the last year or two with ratings down, no one is talking about how the NFL is smart and proactive on fantasy sports? What, everyone stopped playing fantasy football? No, more people than ever. It's just that when the huge macro trend, which has everything to do with, you know, cord cutting and all the things you talk about and the fact that there's only one good team, when the huge macro trend trends down, everyone rushes to all the negative explanations. When it was going up, every little good thing that they were doing was credited to it. It's just, you know, it's simple human heuristics and trying to explain a complex phenomenon with, uh, you know, stupid, stupid explanations. I would have to say, if I want to throw another PhD dissertation, I'd like someone to do the bar chart on where the miming is coming from in America. Because two years ago, I mean, most of the miming, like the, the your pie chart on where you'd find miming, things like street corners and perhaps, you know, your rare Commedia dell'arte uh, performance. Now, the vast majority of miming that people experience is from NFL players having scored. And I want to say here that I think that the layoff in celebration, end zone celebrations has been good for the creative abilities of football players. Yeah, yeah. The NFL is like a, it's like a theater improv class now. It's like, all right, let's do a scene, everybody, where you're arresting somebody on the street, which is exactly what the Washington football team players did in the end zone a few weeks ago after a game-sealing interception. The players did a stop and frisk that ended with (laughs) defensive back Kendall Fuller getting cuffed and arrested. It's great. That's why, by the way, that's why the NBA should let lay fallow the slam dunk competition. It's hard to beat it every year. You give it a rest for four years. When it comes back, people will have this, you know, built up, uh, built up shtick that they're going to unveil on the league. All right, Stefan, if there's one thing that I learned in eight or so, seven plus years of doing the podcast with the three of us, it's that you take the best notes. So mm-hmm. for that reason, and among, among many reasons, I'm going to let you run through the best NFL celebrations of the year to date. All right, great. And then we can just jump in and talk about which ones we like. The Eagles, uh, during the World Series, did a, a home run, a little baseball pitch home run. There was an umpire involved. I thought that was nice. They also did a hit by pitch. There was, like a, a, hit there was a sequel. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Devonta Freeman. And the Falcons took a shot after scoring touchdowns. It was a little basketball reference. One of the offensive linemen held his arms in a circle like you were playing in your living room with your little brother. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, Packers, bobsledding mm-hmm. was a good one. The, the cool, Vikings. Cool runnings vibe there. The Vikings have run through a bunch of elementary school games. They did the leapfrog that Mike mentioned. They did duck, duck, goose. Um, what else do we got here? The Chiefs potato sack race was, I think, a classic, <laughs> an instant classic. <laughs> Oh, the the Steelers. The Steelers have been good. I think the Steelers and the Vikings, Mike, are running one two in terms of creativity and regularity in their performances. Yeah, yeah. Isn't the, this just, isn't the Steelers this just more joyous than? Isn't this just more joyous than ticking off phrases like you know the cover two, like <laughs> to say <laughs> duck duck goose? Isn't that just better? <laughs> the Steelers, uh, Juju Smith Schuster and Le'Veon Bell have developed a sort of like key and peel tag team (laughs) approach. They did a hide and seek one week. And then uh, on Sunday. For for its pure joy, by the way, (laughs) Juju Juju Smith-Schuster running and hiding behind the goalpost. Youngest. Was was really lovely. Youngest player in the NFL. So he has some recent life experience. (laughs) All right. And the most recent one that uh, Smith-Schuster and Bell did was reenacting the A.J. Green-Jalen Ramsey fight, which – I'm going to say that like that one, as well as the stop and frisk one, 
Mike, it opens up so many possibilities for social commentary. I was thinking that um, the next time, maybe it's Smith, Schuster, and Bell. They've shown a real kind of dramatic range. Mm-hmm. Next time that one of them scores, they should reenact the entire NFL season thus far. <laughs> and they, or maybe it's like a synecdoche New York Jets sort of thing where, you know, when Bilal Powell gets into the end zone, he could just do like the entire history of the New York Jets. And it would take like more than 40 years, 50 years maybe, for him to just do like, you know, every game, game by game. And then by the time that he was done, we'd be ready to, to resume our contest. Uh, or when the ref goes under the hood, the players on the field from each perspective could reenact it, what they thought happened. That would be a good use of time. <laughs> or maybe a team on a bye week. That's how they shouldn't actually go to the replay. They should just have a team on the bye week reenact it like in uh, JFK back into the left. <laughs> and then we'll get an understanding of what really happened. I really do. F- I really do wonder if somebody is going to do it, if like all of the streams are going to cross and there's going to be like an uh, kneeling during the anthem well, that's protest what I, I'm, celebration. I'm kind of surprised that a team hasn't sort of gathered in the end zone. Everybody mimes drawing a number seven on their jersey and a big fro and then they all drop <laughs> to a knee. Uh, stay tuned. Feel free. Steelers, Juju, if you're listening. Stay tuned. All right. Um, whimsy Cavalcade. It must go on, Stefan. Um, I was watching the Miami Notre Dame shellacking in a bar on Saturday night. And we've talked about, uh, again, like many times over the years of doing the show, about like the things that really pop with non-sports fans. Or if you're watching a game, Mike, with somebody who doesn't really follow stuff that closely, like what are the things that people notice? And I have like rarely seen a phenomenon like the Miami turnover chain, where it's like instantly everyone who is at the table who like doesn't care doesn't care at all about sports. It was like 15 minutes of conversation about the awesomeness of the turnover chain, like the history of the turnover chain. It is the greatest marketing thing for college football that I have seen in my lifetime, Mike Pesca. I totally agree. And that as a criteria for how are we communicating? Uh, I do it all the time since uh, my kids are, you know, more interested in in things other than the turnover chain, and my girlfriend definitely isn't. But when there are a thing or two, when a thing or two pops, and you can say, hey, look at this, and they get interested in it, then you know you've got something. And it doesn't always have to be ancillary nonsense. It could be a specific play, a great play. It could be, you know, you can explain a specific theme. Leagues should pay attention more to that. It doesn't mean just a cavalcade of shtick. You know, that's how that's what Gruden brings to the broadcast. No one cares about your tur- turkey zones, your turkey holes, or whatever the hell he was talking about the other week. Um, yeah, the turnover tr- chain I is don't great. know what you're talking about. But it sounds awesome. He, it was there was there was this key key play in the uh, in the game, and instead of going to the replay to see if there was a fumble, they went to a prepackaged to talk about uh, throwing the ball between defenders, which he called like the turkey nugget. I don't know what something with a turkey. <laughs> turkey but hole. the turnover chain hole, is yeah. great. It's uh, it's of it's it doesn't seem forced. Like uh, I, you know, playing for the little brown jug is fine, and it's quote unquote tradition, but. Obviously, the players are so motivated by the turnover chain. And when you're getting them to play for free and they have to be motivated by something, remember, most players choose a school for, you know, what quality of free footwear they could get. The turnover chain works on every level. So so we're working on a non-traditional narrative structure here where we talk about how great the turnover chain is without actually explaining what the turnover chain is. Uh, shall I, Stefan, or ahead. do you want to? No, no, go ahead. All right. So before the season, uh, Miami uh, defensive coordinator Manny Diaz had the idea that was inspired in part by Alabama has like a wrestling belt that they give. And Stefan, I think uh, the good note taker that he is, has has a bunch of other examples um, where if a player has a really good game, if a defensive player forces a turnover, they'll get to like parade around with this wrestling belt. And so in true Miami fashion, he had the idea to create a piece of distinctive jewelry. And so this thing is like a Cuban link necklace. Um, according to this piece in the Sun Sentinel, there are 900 orange and green sapphire stones. It's a six and a half inch wide U attached to a 36 inch, two and a half kilogram, 10 carat gold chain. It debuted in the Miami opener 
against Bethune-Cookman. And didn't Vince Wilfork have something to do with its acquisition? Vince Wilfork had something to do with its acquisition. He was like in the store. I, I think it was his idea to make it a Cuban link he necklace. Was in the it is like a store. really, really- He was in the jewelry yeah, store yeah. when the coach called <laughs> the jewelry store owner to say, hey, we want to make a chain. Anthony John Machado, better known as AJ, um, Mike Rumpf, who is a former player who's now the cornerbacks coach, was also involved in the transaction. And so whenever a Miami player forces a turnover, they put this thing on and just like, you know, there, there's a whole ceremony behind it. And then they just like sit on the bench for the entire next series wearing this extremely fat blinged out chain. And Miami's undefeated. They kicked uh, Notre Dame's ass on Mostly Saturday. because of turnovers. <laughs> Mostly because of turnovers. So, um, Stefan, it does seem like not only is this like a great marketing thing, it seems extremely effective and motivating. It's well, it's players. been proven that this kind of thing is motivating. It's proven by science. It is no, it's proven by sports and coaching over the years. One of the first things I learned when I started coaching in kindergarten was that if you create some sort of totem for the players, they will love it. This is just pure human psychology. I mean, my player, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, was was this Barbie dressed up in the uniform of our team, which was called the Power. And it's still called the Power, but we don't do the Barbie anymore because they're in 10th grade. And she was Power Bar, and we would give her out after every game as a motivating tool. And then the girls would dress her up during the week and bring her back next Saturday for the next game. Also Vince Wilfork's idea, strangely. Vince Wilfork, he's my assistant coach. <laughs> Um, so, Stefan, quickly run through yes. the other uh, parallels to the Alabama ball out belt. Uh, Tennessee's got the turnover trash can where if you turn the ball over, you get to go spike the ball in a trash can. Butch Jones recently fired, I think, in large part due to the lameness yeah. of the turnover trash can. There was one game I recall seeing where a player went over to, like, dunk the ball in the in the can and it missed. You don't want to have the possibility no, no, for no. error when you're giving it this award out. Right, which is why Memphis's takeaway belt and Georgia's spiked shoulder pads, I think, fit the bill better than the turnover trash can. <laughs> when he missed the turnover trash can, the announcer said, well, that's why he plays defensive back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the best one, though, I think, by proclamation on the internet is uh, at Kennesaw State. It's the turnover plank. And it's a piece of wood that is painted to look like the plank from the Cartoon Network series, Ed, Ed, and Eddie. And he gets passed around. The plank gets passed around um, by the team, gets dressed up. It is, a piece of, it is a piece of wood Literally, with a smiley face on it. It is a piece of wood with a smiley face on it. All right. The end of our whimsy spectacular. And what a spectacular it's been. Let's just all revel in what adjective the return of whimsy. Can I add one more? Can I add one more favorite thing about the turnover chain? Do it. That there was a Chiron on the television screen after one of the uh, turnovers that identified the player as turnover chain recipient. <laughs> it's changing the way that sports broadcasting works and in America. I, I, I happened to turn over to the UConn-Stanford women's basketball game, and the announcer literally said – after UConn forced the turnover, UConn's got the turnover chain rolling right now. Mm. An Olympic champion, Kyle Snyder, wrestler on Twitter, was showing off his uh, his latest victory for Ohio State. He had a pin chain because he had pinned his opponent. It's it's happening. It's taking over. All right. So Miami just beat the snot out of Notre Dame. This uh, fueled in large part by the turnover chain. But um, let's listen to uh, the Notre Dame defensive coordinator before the game inspiring his team to uh, what would be uh, a rip-roaring defeat in Miami. Turnover team and the Miami defense and how they swarm and how they run and how great they are. And yeah, I'm fucking sick of it. I'm sick of it. You go out tonight and you show the world what this fucking group is all about. You hear me? They can have the chain. We get in the fucking ring. They really did show the world what they were all about. That's for that's for sure. They lived up to that promise. So Mike Elko probably will not be listening to this segment. But my favorite motivational speech from this last week uh, came from the president of Utah Valley University. They were up by nine against Kentucky and John Calipari in the season opener. At halftime. At halftime. This was this was big for Utah Valley. 
And for whatever reason, the school president decided to come into the locker room and give the basketball team a motivational speech. Let's listen to that. Guys, you need to know something. When I came here eight and a half years ago, there was a big question about whether this university could even survive. We were growing fast. We didn't have enough money. No one believed in us. <laughs> That's really what you want to hear when you're at halftime. Like, how can we, State of Kentucky, uh, let's get a, a little talk from our president about how the school was on the verge of bankruptcy a few years ago. That seems extremely appropriate. Kentucky uh, would go on an 18 to nothing run out of uh, halftime and would uh, uh, win by 10. I guess it didn't work. I guess it didn't work. Um, Stefan, you have spent uh, the last few days compiling some of your favorite ever mm. motivational speeches. Maybe well, before we get to that, I wonder, Mike, do you have a theory of the motivational speech? When it, mo- when it motivates, when it doesn't motivate, are we being unfair by just uh, focusing on the results? Maybe if Mike Elko hadn't given that speech, Miami would have won by 100 points. Yeah, no, I think the motivational speech as such never works. I think motivational coaches with different ways to motivate work I've, I've, you only hear about it afterwards. It's like a uh, ropes course or a trust building exercise. Like when things go south, uh, why did that business, why did uh, pets.com collapse? Well, not enough ropes courses. You know, it's, it's very tangential to the uh, actual bottom line, I think. But when things are going good, you could point to it and say, what a great motivational speech slash me falling backwards and being caught by Al at accounts receivable. Uh, Good segue coming up here, Mike. You mentioned ropes. Let's let's talk about the rope. Everyone apparently does the rope in uh, college sports, or some people do the rope in college sports. Let's listen to this clip. This is Louisiana Lafayette Raging Cajuns coach Mark Hudspeth before the New Orleans Bowl in 2011. Grab that rope tight, because I'm telling you what's fixing to happen. They fix the roll up right for the opening kickoff. The opening kickoff, Dexter, they're going to come out and say, give me the freaking rope. They're going to come and try to grab the rope. They're going to try to jerk out of your hand. They're going to try to bring that rope and say, no, you're going to let go. You're going to let go of the rope. They don't know, do they? They don't know. They don't know you ain't going to let go of the rope. They don't know about us. The rope is symbolic of team unity. He also kicked a garbage can in there for effect, which mm-hmm. I liked. What else you got for us, Stefan? Uh, well, you got your movies and your real life, right? Right. That was real life. I think your movie speeches, I think we can, we can argue about this. I mean, the four that I identified, Newt Rockney, All-American, because I think that would be a nice contrast with the Notre Dame speech and yeah. the original Newt Rockney speech, which is very different from the movie speech. Um, you know, and then you got Hoosiers, Rudy, Miracle, Herb Brooks, Miracle on Ice. Which one of those do you want to play for us? Should we to start fire, with, to should fire we start, us up? Let's fire us up with the original, the actual speech by Newt Rockney at halftime in 1928 in the game against Army. Now, the success of any team, then, based on team play, they've been shown all year. Sacrifice, unselfish sacrifice. These other fellas, they say, are pretty good, but I think we're better. And I think if we get ourselves keyed up to a point, well, we're confident of that. Why, the results will take care of themselves. <laughs> what do you think of that, Mike? Uh, that's a good speech because in the movie Rudy, he lip syncs to that speech, doesn't he? Or <laughs> he lip syncs to one of the speeches from Newt Rockney, All America, or All American. Maybe when the brakes are beating the boys, maybe it's the Gipper speech, but it's one of those. Yeah, that, of, that's real life, though. That was not from the movie. He sounds like Catherine Hepburn and His Girl Friday. Or Edward G. <laughs> Robinson. I think he also yeah. sounds a little like Edward. And yeah, there's yeah. a second part of that that I wanted to play, too, which is the more famous part. And don't forget, we're going to pick it on one, light, one tackle they've this week. We're going inside them. We're going outside them. Inside them, outside them. And when we get them on the run once, we're going to keep them on the run. And we're not going to pass unless our secondary comes up too close. But don't forget, man, we're going to get them on the run. We're going to go, 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 go. And we aren't going to stop until we go to that goal line. Don't forget, man, today is the day we're going to win. They can't lick it and the black out of the goal. The first whistle of the man win there. Fight, 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 fight. What do you say, man? Not like super complicated in terms of the messaging. <laughs> It was a simple fight. Time. Also fight and fight. Also fighting and fight. Fight, fight, fight. All right. Hoosiers. 
Rudy, Miracle. I think we should go with Al Pacino in Any Given Sunday because it really is a great motivating. I'm motivated when I listen to this. Here we go. The inches we need are everywhere around us. They're in every break of the game, every minute, every second. On this team, we fight for that itch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that itch. We claw with our fingernails for that itch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the fucking difference between winning and losing. I don't know if that would motivate the players on the team who are really into the metric system, though. Mm-hmm. It seems more like that living and dying thing seems like something that Oliver Stone put on to show why his movie resonates beyond mere football. And an, and an actual football coach would not bring in between living and dying as his culmination. The culmination would be more like, and this is why we have to stop the Bengals on third down. <laughs> Also, I think Pacino was cheating by just having that music pipe into the locker yeah. room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't do that. And that music, when I hear it now, it does make me think of Friday Night Lights. I think Friday Night Lights stole that sort of music because they use that a lot. In the it show. makes me think of Scent of a Woman because that was the exact same character. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Pesca, great to have you back. Whimsy Cavalcade 2017. We'll get the shirts made up. Uh, the gist every day. You can listen to it. Thank you, Mike. You're welcome. Thank you. Great to be back. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore dealmaking across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And now it is time for After Balls. I think we should uh, honor an early touchdown celebrant. Josh, what do you say? We just like literally talked about that right before we started recording. I think you need to just be more transparent with the listeners. So you still agree? Yes. yes, You still agree? Let's do that. Uh, First guy to spike the ball. Homer Jones of the New York Giants, wide receiver, 1965. And apparently he called it a spike. It was present from the creation. Yeah. The spike. And it's lasted. It's lived. The name is lived, too. Good job, Homer. Josh, what's your Homer Jones? Back in my day, Stefan. I remember Homer Jones. I'm that Good. Old. <laughs> thank you. For, thank well, that's for, where my day thank began. You, thank you for adding that reminiscence. Not in 1965, though. I not remember Homer Jones. From as, I, as I was saying, back in my day, there was no easy way to get real-time scores of the games you cared about or, frankly, the games you didn't care about. You could call a phone line. It was intended for the use of compulsive gamblers. Or you could wait for the updates on ESPN at 28 and 58 minutes after the hour. Failing that, there was the late local news or sports center. Or, heaven forfend, the box scores and the newspaper the next morning. You remember those? I do. Uh, in 2017, my friends options abound. I can look on the internet to get the scores I need and don't need, and I can access the internet on my pocket telephone. ESPN doesn't just give you the scores at 28 and 58 anymore. There's a ticker at the bottom of the screen all the time, and you just have to wait for those sweet, sweet scores to roll on past. This is so informative. Now having, now having established the scene for you, that's called uh, establishing the scene, let me take you inside the Levine home this Saturday. LSU, Arkansas, noon kickoff, ESPN. Tigers up 7 nothing, Looking good. Good job, Tigers. Go. Uh, but there are other games going on, and attention must be paid to the entire landscape. At 12.19 p.m. and 47 seconds, while the ESPN camera is lingering on the Live Moss Taco Bell student section, Taco Bell, Live Moss, we get a score alert. On the strip at the bottom of the, of the screen, it's presented by Jared, the Galleria of Jewelry. Jared, the Galleria of Jewelry. Uh, five seconds later. So we started at 12, 19, 47. We're now at 12, 19, and 52 seconds. The score alert banner peels away. So there's been five seconds worth of suspense. What am I being alerted to? Aha, college football score. Number 15, Oklahoma State on the road 
against Iowa State, number 21. The score, it's rendered in black text on a white background. It's zero to zero with 10.02 to play in the first quarter. All right, three seconds later, Stefan, 12, 19, and 55 seconds, the alert has arrived. There's a six next to Iowa State. It's in white text on a red background. It's eye-catching. I've been alerted. Six-nothing Iowa State. All right, fat, let's fast forward one second. 12, 19, 56. It's still there, the white six on the red background next to Iowa State. 12, 19, and 57 seconds. Still six-nothing Iowa State. Seems like Iowa State has scored a touchdown. This much is clear. All right, let's let's move forward uh, in play here. We're, we've now arrived at 12, 19, and 58 seconds. Six to nothing Iowa State still. But wait, a design change. The red background has disappeared. So now it's Iowa State with a black six leading Oklahoma State, which still has zero. 12, 19, and 59 seconds. The NCAA score alert presented by Jared, the Galleria of Jewelry, tells us that the score remains Iowa State 6, Oklahoma State nothing. All right, move forward one second. 12.20 and zero seconds, still 6 to nothing. All right, let's move forward another second. It's still Iowa State 6, Oklahoma State 0. I've lived an eternity in the 14 seconds since the score alert banner came on screen. 12.20 and two seconds. The red background has returned. That Oh, wait, Stefan, there's a white numeral. It's now Iowa State 7, Oklahoma State nothing. The Taco Bell student section remains on screen. So what, at what point am I making here? You might, be, you might be asking. You seem confused. That is a full seven seconds between when we saw that Iowa State had six and when the ESPN ticker operator or the ESPN ticker algorithm deigned to tell us that the Cyclones had made the extra point. To be clear, it wasn't like ESPN was waiting to find out if Iowa State had made the extra point. At 12.15, almost five full minutes before the ESPN score alert, we got this update from the official Oklahoma State Cowboys Twitter account. Iowa State benefits from an OK State penalty that kept the drive alive. Not particularly generous, but whatever. And the Cyclones take an early 7 to nothing lead. This is at 12.15 p.m. Also, so ESPN knew that Iowa, that Iowa State had made the extra point a full five minutes before they made us wait seven seconds to learn that Iowa State had made the extra point. Also, to be clear, seven seconds is a really long time. All right, I've got my stopwatch out here, Stefan. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be silent for seven seconds. This is the amount of time I had to wait to see if Iowa State had made the extra point. Do I here, have to be silent? You too? have to be silent, too. Oh, okay. Here we go. So that is how long I had to wait to see if Iowa State made the extra point. Why don't they just put seven to nothing up there? So, Stefan, you might argue because ESPN, perhaps alone among our institutions in this nation, recognized that the extra point is a play that stands alone. Mm-hmm. It deserves attention, acclaim, and respect. Does it deserve seven full seconds of waiting? It deserves a few <laughs> seconds. That's a Reference to the title of my book. It is. Very good. Good, uh, good marketing. Um, this is how far we've come in terms of uh, what we expect. Things were much simpler when all you had yeah. to do was dial 9761313. Yeah, you called and it was all the sports news. You called and it, and it, it was 6 nothing. Then you called back 15 minutes later and yes. you found out that they made the extra and point. And that was worth the 50 cents. All right. This is my plea to you, ESPN. Do not make me wait. Just put the six or the seven, or the eight, or however many they score in the sequence, and then we'll know what, we'll know what happened right away. That's all I ask. Thank you, ESPN. Stefan, what is your Homer Jones? Well, there was some hot elite sports writer on elite sports writer action on Twitter on Sunday. It all started when Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post tweeted about the Duke men's basketball coach's big win over aforementioned Utah Valley the night before. Congrats to Mike Krzyzewski for 1,000 victories. A reminder, he's not the first NCAA Division I coach to do it. That would be Pat Summit. Well, male human and defender of all things Duke, John Feinstein, wasn't just going to lie down on his 36 books and let Coach K have it. So when hang-up guest Sally followed with a second tweet, noting that Summit got to 1,000 before she turned 60, while Krzyzewski is already 70, Feinstein was obligated to respond, Right, Sal, Krzyzewski's nothing but a piker. 
Thank God someone was there to defend the downtrodden Dookie from the calumny of being compared with a coach who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease also before turning 60 and died last year at age 64. So Sally, who, like Feinstein, often engages trolls, replied, Don't start, John. The point is not superiority. It's that Pat had a lot left to do. How about you drop your tirades for one sec so we can talk about a disease instead of guy insecurities? Friend of the podcast, Charlie Pierce, tried to break it up. This is an argument that should not start, he wrote, but nothing was going to stop this knuckle chucker. I have never put down Pat's achievements, Feinstein fulminated. I get upset when you and others try to put Mike down. I disagreed with your timing today. That's why I reacted probably overreacted. Yes, poor Mike, constantly being put down. What would he do without Feinstein to defend him? Followers jumped in. Some brayed that Pat Summit had no competition. Others fact-checked that the 1,000 wins are at Duke and that Coach K actually has 1,073, still trailing Summit's 1,098 for a little while longer. And one guy wondered why everyone was screaming when all Sally did was remind people that, quote, college basketball is played and coached by men and women both. Which is exactly right. It's like when people talk about how the United States has never won a World Cup, except for the three that the women have won. So good for Sally for offering a reality check amid a canonization, ooh, a thousand wins, for a statistical achievement achieved by others, including Stanford's Tara Vanderveer among coaches of women and Danny Miles of Oregon Tech. Herb McGee of Philadelphia University, which just changed its name to Thomas Jefferson University, and Harry Statham, who after an 88-63 to win over Principia on Saturday, has won 1,111 games since he started coaching McKendry University in Lebanon, Illinois, 50 years ago. Anyway, Sally chose to ignore Charlie's advice and escalated things. My problem is that you talk from ignorance. You don't go near women's hoops and then want to pronounce. Cover the damn sport, then talk. And by the way, she wasn't done. And by the way, maybe you wouldn't see it as a put down if you'd been to a women's game sometime in the last quarter century. Ooh. What did I say today about women's hoops, Sally? I don't cover the NBA either, or high school basketball, or a lot of things. I cover what I'm working on. Yeah, what did Feinstein do anyway? Other than smart-assedly imply that Sally had in fact put down Krzyzewski when she hadn't. And what did Sally do, other than bring up Summit's Alzheimer's as a mitigating factor in her victory total? And what did Feinstein do but say that comparing their win totals is apples and oranges? And what did Sally do but then accuse Feinstein of equating Eddie Robinson's wins with Joe Paterno's while noting that Summit coached for years, quote, with secondhand equipment and no funding, end quote. And what did readers do but post gifts of John Stewart eating popcorn and mention how John Wooden had it easy and no that Paterno enabled a pedophile. I would like now to note that 37 college softball coaches have more than a thousand wins. You go, Phil McSpadden of Oklahoma City University with your 1,613, and that the wiki list for baseball wins in college starts at 1,100, and the leader, Augie Garrido, retired last year with 1,975 wins, and the dude in second, Mike Martin of Florida State, should pass 2,000 in 2019, and the guy in third, Gordy Gillespie, coached for 59 years and that UNC women's soccer coach Anson Dorrance has 825 wins which is 275 more than the next women's coach and 130 more than the next men's coach in conclusion Josh Pat Summit was a much better coach than Mike Krzyzewski when you were talking about relying on the achievements of others I thought you were going to go to a place that I wish you had gone to which is that Mike Krzyzewski didn't win any of those damn games that is correct. <laughs> he got paid a shitload of money to do it while his pay- players weren't getting paid, though. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Thanks to the new Twitter character limit. Uh, Stefan's entire afterball will be available in a single tweet when you can look forward to reading that. You should also check out John, Emily, and David on the original Unbeatable, Unstoppable Slate Political Gab Fest. Is Stephen, that the new name? The original Stephen, Unbeatable, Unstoppable? Stephen Colbert says everybody should listen to the Slate Political Gab Fest, and he's extremely famous. Listen to uh, him when he says what well, you should listen to. 
You can get new episodes every Thursday evening at slate.com slash GabFest. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zama Obeidi, and thanks for listening. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>